Hi, I'm Trevor. And I'm Laura. We're married, and we like to do a lot of different things together. But what got us together initially was that we love to eat and we like to drink. And we love to learn how our favorite foods and beverages came to be. In each episode of this podcast, we'll talk about something delicious and answer the question, Where did this come from? So we picked our first ripe tomato from our garden this weekend. It actually was a big moment. We've got... um, well, first of all, we usually kill most yes, plants. Yes, we're not very good at, we're not good plant parents. <laughs> we're not. We're getting better, though, since we're home all the time and we remember to water them. But uh, one of our quarantine projects, in addition to this podcast, was to plant a garden. Yes. And it is now bearing fruit. <laughs> it is bearing Slash fruit. Slash vegetables. Uh, as, as exciting as I'm sure it is for everyone to listen about our garden, Maybe, should, we start, should we start the show? Should we start? <laughs> On that we exciting note, should start the show. <laughs> welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Where Did This Come From, uh, the podcast where we talk about all things delicious and kind of dig into their origin stories and how they came to be. Uh, I'm Trevor. And I'm Laura. And I am really, really excited for uh, this week's episode because we're talking about our first wine topic of the, of the series so far. Yes. And if you don't know Trevor, um, he is very passionate about wine and is actually a certified sommelier, um, which means he just has a lot of wine knowledge. Talk to people about you actually studying for your psalm exam because yeah. that was quite a it was quite an experience. It was even it was. like from the outside looking in. It was. I think that would be a good a good episode on its own yeah. for sure. Yeah, we'll but definitely. We'll definitely. When I would that. like leave for work in the morning, and Trevor at the time was working at uh, restaurant, so I would we had basically a whole stock of the various wines that he needed to test and do blind tasting for. So in the morning, I would pour out a bunch of samples for him. Um, I would mark them like a note in my phone to make sure that I knew which one was which. And then he would text me what his answers were. Cause he, he, there was like the, the blind tasting component of yeah. the exam. This was at like eight in the morning. Eight in the morning, which is, I guess, when you're supposed to taste the wine. Your senses are at their best because you haven't brushed your teeth. You haven't had coffee. Just a little sip of water. Your your nose is going to be ready. Your palate's going to be ready. So, I was doing blind tastings three to four times a day. So yeah. eight in the morning when you'd get up with you, I'd study and I'd head to work at Lineage, the restaurant I worked at at the time. Um, my GM at the time, Amy, would who was a certified SOM, would kind of help me study. She'd have a blind tasting waiting for me there when I got to work. Um, and then on my way home from work after shift, I would text Laura and she'd ask me, "He's like, do you want me to set up another tasting for you?" Um, and I would generally say yes. Sometimes I just couldn't do it anymore. Like my yeah. brain was just not. There the was place a lot it, of, um, you know, obviously he didn't drink all of them. So no, no, you <laughs> you spit them out. You spit them out. Just for people who think you're like starting to drink at eight in the morning. No, I mean um, I was technically I was tasting. You were tasting at eight in the morning. Yeah, but it was um, quite an experience. And then you know after you passed. I think we did not drink wine for a I, while. I, like, <laughs> I, hand to God, I did not drink wine for a full three months. Yeah. I, in fact, the day after, like I, yeah, I poured out a full case of partial bottles of wine. And that was a third of what we used to study. So I, I basically bought three to four cases of wine um, that I didn't really drink. Yeah. Just to study for the test, which yeah. honestly was worth every single penny in the long run. Right. Um, but it was sad to like, 
dump out some of that wine because it was so good. But I was also sick of wine because I was trying to, <laughs> I was trying to take one for the team and drink up the mm-hmm. extra bottles after yeah. Trevor would taste. But you can only do that for so yeah. long. <laughs> we went out. I know. I remember we went out that night with our friends Katie and Patrick to celebrate. And the server came over and they're like, oh, he just passed his psalm exam. She's like, oh, do you want to see the wine list? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> I will take the beer list. <laughs> I know. I said, absolutely not. I will have a Negroni, please, now. Like, I was polite about it, obviously. But um, <laughs> I had a Negroni. It was the best taste Negroni I've ever had in my life at that point. And I promptly didn't drink wine for three whole months yeah, after that. Yeah. But obviously, we've gotten over that since and continue to drink wine on the regular, particularly oh, yes. in quarantine uh, yes, times. Uh, yes. so, pretty cool. And there's always, anytime we have wine, there's usually a story that goes along with it. Whether um, she asks me for it or not. This is true. Sometimes <laughs> I'm just like, okay, pour the wine. <laughs> just pour the wine. I need the wine. Put the wine in the glass. But Trevor has a very, um, you know, he has like a trivia mind. So he can like, he keeps facts all up in his brain space. <laughs> Try to anyway. It's harder these yeah. days. Um, but today, this week, we're talking about one of the most renowned and storied wine regions in the world, which is Burgundy, France. Woo-hoo. So, Laura, when I say we're going to talk about Burgundy wine today, what's what comes to mind for you? Um, so I think high-end wine. Um, Fair. You know, on the more pricey side, um, you know, Pinot Noir primarily, I believe. Pinot Noir. (laughs) And um, Chardonnay grapes. Um, But I I also think of it as like a little bit like pretentious um, in some ways, like unapproachable. That's that's fair. That's fair. Honestly, uh, I mean, you're you're, you're pretty spot on with a lot of that, which is awesome. Um, So It's just because your knowledge has rubbed off on me. Maybe. I like to think so anyway. But I mean, as someone, you mentioned that, you know, pretension, like as someone who worked in the world of restaurant hospitality for the better part of, you know, 15 years, I really, I hate it when people are pretentious about wine. And that's, you know, for both professionals and consumers alike. Um, There really is a wine for everybody out there. And if, if White Zinfandel is your thing, then dive into it headfirst with a passion and get after it. If you want thousand dollar bottles of Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, that's, that's awesome. Do that as well. So my yeah, main just don't goal, be a jerk about it. Yeah, don't be a jerk about it. Um, so my main goal in becoming a sommelier, and in the wine-based episodes of this podcast, they're going to they're gonna come after this one. Um, my goal is kind of un- to undo a lot of that stuck-up stigma around wine, to you know, demystify it, and just make it much more approachable for everybody out there. It can be really intimidating for a lot of people. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's kind of what I want to try to do with today's episode. And every, you know, few episodes or, I don't know, if there's going to be a regular cadence of it or not, but I want to have regular wine episodes and some, yeah. start off with the more unapproachable parts of the world, if you will. Yeah. And I, I think it's it's cool to hear about, you know, these regions and why they became so popular. Um, but I think on the flip side, for a, a lot of people, um, you know, they have a wine that they really like. And so if they like that, maybe they would like to try something else. So kind of broadening the scope of people's um, wine palettes. Exactly. And that's, I mean, a huge part of what I love to do when I'm talking about wine or even educating people on wine is, you know, maybe someone's like, oh, I only like Pinot Noir. I'm sorry. I only like Pinot Grigio is a good example. A lot of great Pinot Grigios out there. A lot of really tried and true Pinot Grigio drinkers who are just afraid to branch out to anything else because they're so used to what they drink. 
But then you say, oh, maybe you'll love this beautiful Picot de Pinay from Languedoc, France, or maybe you'll love this, you know, other white wine. And just being able to broaden people's horizons is what I'm, I'm kind of hoping to do with, uh, with at least the wine episodes of this podcast anyway. Yeah, cool. I'm excited. So Burgundy, France, let's get into it. So there's a lot of factors that make Burgundy amazing, um, but it can also be very unapproachable, as we were talking about for a lot of people, because mm-hmm. of how we're used to buying and drinking wine here in the States, which is a very specific thing. So we're used to seeing things very clearly marked out on a wine bottle, right? So almost exactly in this order is vineyard or name, yep. grape, region, and year. So Silverado, Cabernet Sauvignon, Napa Valley, 2015. Like, boom, yeah. this is what I'm buying. This is what I'm getting. Right. But, but yeah, and then as soon as you like know an area or a vineyard that you like, yeah, you kind of go back to that every time. Yeah, which is honestly, like I said, that's totally fantastic, yeah. especially if you find something you really like. There's so many wine options out there. There's so much parity that definitely worth exploring that. But in other parts of the world, like Burgundy and France, for example, things are labeled a little bit differently. So it becomes less about the grape varietal specifically and more about where in that region it's coming from, which for us here, again, it's hard for us to kind of wrap our head around because we know Napa Valley, Cabernet, and like it's not necessarily labeled that way in other parts of the world. So let's backtrack a little bit here and get into some of what actually makes Burgundy Burgundy and how it became this legend in the world of wine. So first off, just where is Burgundy in France? Uh, the, the Burgundy wine region's east-central France. So the northernmost part of Burgundy sits about 113 miles southeast of Paris. So Paris is kind of north-central, north-ish central, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so just 113 miles southeast of there is where it is. Now going way back, as we like to do on these episodes. Yeah, um, yeah a lot of the things we really like uh, started in like ancient times. <laughs> and wine is no exception to that. Right. So in the year 52 BC, after their conquest of Gaul, the Romans brought wine vines to the region. Now the Gauls, who were the ancient French, France used to be called Gaul, um, had gained quite a taste for wine at this point, but it had all been up imported up to that point. So they'd been you know, spending the money to get it sent into the country because they didn't have their own grapes. Mm-hmm. So we know that the Romans were the first to bring grapes into the area to begin that planting process. But as time went on and the rise of Christianity and with the arrival of the Middle Ages, the region saw a huge growth in the amount of monasteries and abbeys popping up in the area and snatching up land. Now, these are mostly run by monks and priests. And because of their scholarly nature, the monks from these monasteries poured so much of their time that they weren't praying uh, into just developing and homing their skills into growing and producing wine. Hmm. Yeah, cool. which is, you see that across a lot of different right. alcohol fronts as well. You see it a lot with beer, right. which we'll get into down the line with other episodes as well. Um, monks loved alcohol. <laughs> and <laughs> some of the best spirits out there, um, things like chartreuse, are made by certain um, sects of monks in yeah. monasteries around the world. Yeah, cool. So, so they, they, spend... would, they would pray and they would uh, grow their grapes. Yeah, they'd and pray. A lot. They'd pray, they'd farm, and they would drink basically. Um, And they worked hard for it. So it's totally fair. So because of all the time that they put into this, they were able to determine the best terroirs to grow these specific grapes in. And time for a little lesson. The word terroir sounds incredibly pretentious. So (laughs) terroir is, um, it's, it's a French word, obviously, but it's how a particular region's climate, soils, and terrain all combined 
affect the taste of a wine once it's actually produced. Mm, okay. So it's kind of like an intangible, like all the all the factors coming together. Exactly. To make exactly. a certain grape taste a yeah. certain way. And terroir is used across the entire wine world. So the philosophy of the terroir system says that even though two wines are created from the same exact grape, uh, if those grapes are grown in different areas, even in like neighboring vineyards, Right, right next to each other. The resulting wines could be really, really drastically different from one another. Right. Um, like even subtle differences in soil composition or like elevation and terrain can affect the taste of the grapes, which is, you know. So good. on the simplest level, would you say, okay, the toir of this wine from this vineyard on this this year differs in, you know, mouthfeel and, you know, tannins from this other one like is that a correct use of the word you would you would say that the terroir of this vineyard that produces this same grape from this one is different for these reasons which is why the wine tastes this way okay. so you wouldn't necessarily describe terroir in the description of how the wine tastes but the wine tastes and feels a certain way because of the terroir, oh, if okay. that makes sense yeah, so you wouldn't yeah. be like swirling and say mm, i'm getting notes of terroir on this but <laughs> yeah. But depending on the soil set, you could in a sense because like it's an earthier kind of you smell like things that are grown a lot in clay soil. You can get a little bit of that that clay scent on the nose of the wine too. Mm-hmm. And that that contributes to the wines. Yeah, the terroir contributes to the to final the product. Right. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So this is how a lot of the grapes of Burgundy got planted where they did was because the hard work and study of these monks to figure out this elevation is going to work best here or has this slope for this kind of drainage and this soil set has been really, really fantastic for Pinot Noir or other grapes in the area too. Mm-hmm. Um, so they really kind of poured their heart and soul into it outside of their you know, studies and praying. Yeah. So over the years, this is how the vast majority of Burgundy vines fell under control of the monasteries and Catholic Church. And this was for centuries, hundreds yeah. and hundreds of years. Now at this point, We've gone through several, several generations of monks right. producing and Burgundy actually, wine. Actually, hold for a sec. So were the monks um, drinking all of the wine themselves or were they, they were selling not. it to... Okay. They were not. They kept a lot of it for themselves. But because of the really close ties between the Catholic Church and the aristocracy, more specifically royalty and the court, mm-hmm. um, most of Burgundian wines were for the very ultra rich. Okay. Or the Catholic Church which again was essentially right. ultra rich and a member of the aristocracy of France at that point. Gotcha. Um okay. So it wasn't just these monasteries, you know, bottling and keeping the wines. No. It was They had a stranglehold on the land. Right. For sure. Um and the process and things like that. Yep. But they were definitely benefiting from sales. In fact, at this point, they were so dialed in on how they made these wines that they gained widespread fame across all of Europe. Mm. So Burgundy was getting exported all over the place. So it's it's pretty much since the beginning of it being what it is, it's been a highly sought after type yeah, of wine. Yeah, it's like always the been the creme de la creme. It has. Yeah, it really has. Especially at that time even because there, there were much fewer wineries at that point, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, so the, the vineyards, I said, remained mostly under the control of those monasteries and the, the ultra rich in France until a little thing called the French Revolution oh, yeah. in 1789. <laughs> so at that point, 
I'm not going to go into the French Revolution in depth because we don't have the time, and it's definitely not our lane that we're swimming in here. Um, but at that time, the clergy and the very rich were stripped of their possessions and their property. And these large, sprawling vineyards of Burgundy were then divided many, many times over, redistributed, and auctioned off to the Burgundian locals mm. and to the Parisian middle class, who kind of spurred up the entire revolution. Yep. So this is when you start getting family-owned vineyards popping up in Burgundy, and where actually a lot of today's issues with Burgundy wines being too obscure and expensive for a lot of people um, starting. So okay. before the Wait, French... So this was what, like 17... Late 18th century, yes. Okay. 1790s, 90, yeah, yeah, okay. basically, rounding up. Yep. So before the revolution, uh, French inheritance law stated that all of a man's wealth and property would be passed down to his oldest son. Though any other sons would either go into the military or to the clergy to have a career and as a way to make money because they weren't getting any inheritance right. unless their older brother passed away for some reason. Right. And the daughters were just as, left out. As you can expect from that time period, uh, um, the daughters would get nothing. Right. Um, unless they were the only child, their husband would then mm. be the one to inherit all the land and right. the wealth and everything like that. Yeah. As big or as small as that might be. Right. So once the revolution ended, the Napoleonic Code took effect, which, of course, named after Napoleon. Mm -hmm. So this was really the new set of laws that governed France in the wake of the revolution. So at that point, all wealth and property was divided equally amongst all male heirs yeah. in any family. So this is how vineyards got so fractured over the last few centuries. So because of this now, today... Mm -hmm. They've just been divided and divided and divided and divided. There's over 4,000 independent winemakers in Burgundy, which is a lot. That's yeah. a lot of winemakers for any region. But this is even more, considering the total acreage of vineyards in Burgundy makes up less than 10% the total size of Rhode Island. Wow. Oh, that's tiny. One-tenth okay. of Rhode Island had 4,000 different vineyards. Different vineyards. Imagine so you that. could have like... Not different vineyards. I mean... Like areas to grow grapes, independent winemakers. Right. So basically, if you're if your town had four thousand people in it, and that town was one tenth the size of Rhode Island, everyone right. is making their own wine. Right. Wow. So as it as the land keeps getting divided and divided and divided on these generations, you could in theory just own one row. Exactly. Of grapes. Exactly. Some people in Burgundy do don't even own enough land to produce wine, like you're saying, or they don't want to bother with the high cost of actually producing it. They sell their grapes off. Right. every year to other large houses um, or they contract there for years and years that all of my grapes are going to go to domain A right? and they're going to use my grapes to make their wine. Yep. Or they also sell it off to what's called negociants, which is kind of a similar thing to what I was just saying. So mm -hmm. negociants are basically merchants who are going to either buy grapes or juice from farmers to produce their own wine. Um, so yeah, negociant wine, definitely something that exists. In fact, even some of the top producing or top like rated wines of Burgundy aren't even domain bottled. They're negociant made. Yeah. Would that be indicated on the bottle? It is indicated on the bottle. It's written in French. In French. <laughs> written in French. <laughs> it's written in French on the bottle, of course. Uh, but you would see the word negociant on there. Um, okay. Or a lot of times you'd see like bottled for so-and-so like on the bottle as well. Okay. Um, but you would see it on the bottle yeah. more often than not. Again, so much of what makes Burgundy really, really special is that overall terroir that we were talking about and the smaller subregions in the area too. So 
With so many winemakers in such a small area, though, it's become less and less about where the wine is coming from in Burgundy and more about the skills of the wine growers and winemakers involved. So speaking of that terroir again, let's get into a little bit of the geography of region. Now we've gotten through the, the history, let's get into a little bit of the geography. So since Burgundy doesn't border any major bodies of water, like an ocean or a sea, it's got what is called a continental climate because it's kind of centrally located. Yep, makes so, sense. Yeah, it does. Millions of years ago, though, Burgundy used to be the ocean floor. So therefore, the soil oh. tends to be, yeah, it was, it was the ocean bed at one point. Like? like The when... bottom of the ocean. Right. <laughs> no, I... As in the bottom of the sea. <laughs> right. Um, okay, so are we talking like? Like when the earth was formed, like tectonic plates kind of? Uh, millions of years ago. That's okay. what I've got here. I, okay. don't, I don't have exactly how long ago. Okay. Um, I mean, obviously it was a long time ago. But. Yeah. But All since right. that's the case, the soil tends to be dominated by like limestone, clay, and chalk because there's a lot of stuff you see on the, the ocean floor, which just happens to be ideal for the grapes that are grown there. It's perfect for these yeah. grapes. So what are these grapes in Burgundy, right? So Burgundy wines are usually produced from a single grape varietal. Uh, and this is called monocépage in okay. French. So a lot of cépage means blend. Okay. Mono, single. One, so one grape, basically. One grape blend. Yeah. So with the majority of wines in Burgundy, reds are Pinot Noir. Yep. Okay. I did know that one. 100% Pinot Noir. <laughs> and whites are basically 100% Chardonnay. Now, there's a couple other grapes that grow in the region, too. Predominantly a white called Aligote, um, which is, again, it's a lighter kind of style, crisper white wine. You don't see a ton of Aligote, but there are certain villages that do just grow that exclusively. And Gamay. So Gamay is the the main grape of Beaujolais, which is the southernmost part of Burgundy, which we'll get into a little bit more about Beaujolais later. So those are the four primary grapes of Burgundy. So... Again, the bread and butter is Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So if you see a, a, a white bottle that says Bourgogne, it's Chardonnay for the most part. And if you see a red one, it's going to be Pinot Noir. So let's yeah, that simplifies things quite a bit. Right. right so if you like Chardonnay and you like Pinot Noir, Burgundy is going to be a amazing good for you. Maybe <laughs> one of the best choices for you. So something really interesting about Burgundy, or at least I think so, is that it's situated around the 47th parallel north, latitude-wise. Okay, that means nothing to me. But... Well, <laughs> it's funny you say that, because I've got more notes here. Great. <laughs> so because of that, it's got a cooler, more controlled growing season, because it's a little bit further north. Okay. Um, and that's really, really important in producing grapes with a good amount of acidity. And the reason for that is, the warmer the weather, the riper the grapes are going to be, the riper the grapes, the more sugar they're going to have. And the more sugar generally produces what we consider, you know, fruity or sweeter wines. Not dessert wines, but just more fruit forward. Yeah. Um, it's just a riper style of wine, which is why you get so many wines from the really like central coast of California, which is hot, hot, hot. Really jammy, round, fruity, dark fruit forward wines like... Um, like Central Coast Cabernet is a good example from like Paso Robles. It's really, really good for that stuff. Amazing barbecue wine. Yeah. So having that acidity remain in the grapes is vital in producing really age-worthy and balanced wines to balance out that residual sugar that's left from the ripeness. So other well-known Pinot Noir regions in the world, like Willamette Valley in Oregon and Central Otago in New Zealand, all sit around the same parallel. Uh-huh. Now, of course, Central Otago is in New Zealand, so it's in the southern right. hemisphere, so it's on the, the southern parallel. But all three of those regions, which produce some of the best Pinot Noirs in the world, 
hover around that 45th to 47th parallel. So it's a sweet spot. It's a sweet spot. In fact, there's a couple other places too, like Bordeaux, you can do this. In Burgundy, you can do this. Find like the most renowned wine region for a certain thing and draw a line around the planet. Odds are you're going to find another wine region in another country that does almost the same thing very, very well. Yeah, that's cool. It's just so much of where a grape is actually grown. Right. It really, really matters. Right. So there's so many amazing vineyards and villages in Burgundy to look out for when you're shopping for wine, which is, you know, really what makes it a more difficult thing to do and, you know, can really shut down your brain if you're staring at yeah, a, it can be a wall overwhelming. But there's six, the six most distinct regions um, you're going to most likely come across are, are these. And they're list, I'm listing these from north to south. So I was saying that 113 miles southeast of Paris is where Burgundy starts. And that is Chablis. Mm-hmm. So Chablis to the north. Just below that, you've got the two regions that make up something called the Cote d'Or, which is the, the hillside of gold, basically translated. So to the north, nice. you've got the Cote de Nuit. Just below that, Cote de Bone. Below that, you've got the region of Cote Chalonnet, Mecanet, and then Beaujolais, as I was talking about, top to bottom. Gotcha. So Chablis, mainly they make white wines of Chardonnay, yes, kind of from around the village of Chablis. So yep. if you like if you think you don't like Chardonnay is what I'm trying to say, you've probably had a bad experience with over-oaked Chard in the past. Right. So From the U.S. From the U.S., maybe. Most could likely. Be, could be other parts of the world, because other parts of the world are heavily oaking Chardonnay to sell to the American market. Right. Um, but most Chablis is aged in stainless steel vats as opposed to barrels, and it really is one of the truest expressions of the Chardonnay grape. Yeah. So if you think you don't like Chardonnay, yeah. please try Chablis. I was in that camp. I definitely... Never thought I was into Chardonnay until I had a great bottle of Chablis. And like, if you, oh, if this you is good. yeah, if you know what Sancerre is and you like Sancerre, I almost guarantee you that you will like at least one vineyard of Chablis. It's almost the same soil set in Chablis as you have in Sancerre. So really, really fantastic, light, crisp, bright acidity, a little bit of fruitiness to it. Pairs amazingly well with shellfish and seafood. Just absolutely phenomenal. Yum. So just below that, you've got the Cote de Nuit. Here is where we find many of the greatest red wines of Burgundy. This is the most renowned Pinot Noir part of the world is the Cote de Nuit. Uh, now, this is where Domaine Romane Conti is actually from, which is historically probably one of the oldest and one of the most consistently expensive Pinot Noir producers on the planet. I feel like we're going to have to spell all these things out because I cannot picture how they are. <laughs> well, uh, slang for this vineyard is DRC. Okay. So DRC, like if you go ask a and say, hey, have you had any DRC? Um, most will probably say no. Like I, I'm not a practicing Psalm anymore at this point, so I'm, I'm further away from the possibility of getting this. But as an example, Domaine Romani Conti's first vintage was in the year 1232. Wow. Yeah. And current vintages generally sell for several thousand dollars a bottle. Okay. But as an example, in 2018... A 1945 DRC vintage, single bottle, sold at auction at Sotheby's for $558,000. Oh my gosh. That is That's so much money insane. for a drink. Guess what? It's still grape juice. Right. And I love wine. Still just grape juice. That... That's a lot of money to pay for grape juice. Wow. So could they even drink? I mean, with that, assuming that it was stored properly. I think that price tag comes with the assumption that it was because at wine auctions there's like 
certain labeling for like where the level on the bottle is like mm, yeah because the wine over time will like turn back not into evaporate vinegar. necessarily but no 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 if it's stored properly yeah um it would be okay it could be okay that is a crazy amount of money anyway okay so really south, fancy stuff from yes cote de cote de okay now just south of that the other component of the cote d'or is cote de bone which is just fun to say. Cote de Bone. Uh, a mixture of red and white wines are coming from Cote de Bone. So they do make red, they do make white. So this is where the world's most famous and sought after white burgundies come from. Money, money, money. White burgundy tends to be quite expensive and if it's carrying the right name on but it. Yeah. Now just south of that is Cote Chalonnais. So red and white wines um, are coming from here. And this is kind of like the hidden secret of burgundy. So for me... Givry is a fantastic place to start your journey into Burgundy. Givry, G-I-V-R-Y. Write that down. Okay. And there's some really great value to be had here with wines that drank way above their price point. So like a $30 splurge here is going to give you a really memorable wine experience that's going to open up these gates to this amazing right. wine region of the world. Instead I, of spending, you know, $500,000 on a bottle. You can I mean, start you, at the $30 if you've got the range. Money, I mean, why not buy a 1945 <laughs> bottle of DRC? Just below that, we've got the Mekinese. So mainly white wines, such as Puy Fuisse, St. Veron, Mekon Village. Uh, really great value to be found here for white wine from Burgundy. So if you want to start getting into the Burgundy world, check out, for white, check out Mekonese and Chablis. For red, Cote de Chalonnaise. Now, the southernmost part of Burgundy, Beaujolais. Um, so the often overlooked stepchild of Burgundy, I like <laughs> to say. Beaujolais. Um, it gets a really bad reputation, honestly, because of the overly fruity Beaujolais Nouveau that's produced every year, which is literally, they pick it in September, and by the time November rolls around, it's already bottled. Yeah. Super fruit Super forward. young. Um, a lot of times you see it out for Thanksgiving. Um, it's a pretty heavy Thanksgiving wine. Um, and it's super, yeah, it's literally the name is new Beaujolais. So yeah. really young, really fruity. Some people say it has a bubblegummy kind of flavor to it because it's so fruity. Hmm. Um, so not for everybody, but. I said before, Beaujolais is made from the Gamay grape, and it's really not a place to ignore, I promise you. So when coming from the right hands, Gamay is going to have similar characteristics to Pinot Noir. So light, bright red fruits to it. Now, my favorite Beaujolais come from the Cote de Bruy. And there's 10 different subregions in Beaujolais that I'm not going to get into, obviously. Uh, but Cote de Bruy. So Cote in French, I've been saying the word Cote a lot. Uh, C-O-T-E means hillside. Uh, but the hillside here, in this case, is actually the site of an ancient volcano. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so Cote de Bruy, the vines here grow on the slopes and get more sun and much better drainage than the surrounding areas and produce this fantastic red wine that has a lot, a lot of character to it. So really don't sleep on Beaujolais. Check out Beaujolais when you have the time, I promise. But maybe not Beaujolais Nouveau. Maybe. Not. It's up to you. Maybe it's you. If you like bubblegum, yeah, that's maybe true. Maybe it's for you. Explore on your own. So when shopping for Burgundy wine, uh, or really any wines from France, it's important to know a little bit about the AOP system, or AOC, not the AOC we know here in the States these days. <laughs> but the AOP system, or AOC system, stands for, I'm going to try this with a French pronunciation, so bear with me. Appellation d'origine protégée, or contrôlée. So the French AOP system has rules that apply to nearly every single aspect of wine production. This is going to include grape varieties that may be used in a certain area, 
uh, minimum alcohol levels for a wine, aging requirements, like how long it can be in barrel, what type of barrel, and even vineyard planting density, like mm-hmm. how close you can have your vines So it's basically together. like regulations. It's super strict regulation. Yeah. So it, like a farm in the U.S. could be certified organic and they have to like meet all this criteria. So to get an AOC or an AOP designation, they have to meet the criteria. Yes. Now they can still produce wine, but the risk of not getting that designation means that they might not be considered as seriously or might not be able to actually sell their wine for as much as they should or want to mm-hmm. without that classification. Right. So Burgundy, just to make things really easy, has a mm-hmm. hundred different AOCs or AOPs. Um, oh, so, th- so like different levels of certification? No, different. So like an AOP would say like, we live in Massachusetts. Like this wine is AOP certified that it is Massachusetts. And it's oh. like... Oh. following all the rules. So if it was in Givry, to get Givry on the bottle, there's a certain list of rules to get that Givry AOP. Gotcha. Or from Cote de Bruy for Beaujolais. If you want your bottle to say Cote de Bruy on it, you have to follow these rules. Gotcha. Okay, so and there's a hundred different rules sets in, bo- to in follow Burgundy. in Burgundy. Yeah. So think of the AOP as an address label on your wine, right? Indicating the place the grapes have been grown and the rules they had to follow to get there. So again, with a hundred different AOPs coming from this wine region, it can seem really overwhelming, but the label implies what winemaking rules had to be followed and can really help as a guide for shoppers out there. So really, it's as simple as looking up the, the rules for the AOP on your phone while you're shopping to get an idea of what to expect in the bottle. We all have these incredibly powerful search devices in our pockets all the time, so don't shut down at the wine shop at the Wall of Burgundy. Just look up the rules of the the, the AOP that it's listed as. So right. like, oh, I want to get a wine from this Pinot Noir from Rui. What are the rules that Rui has to follow? To get there. And it'll give you a pretty good indication of what to expect from the bottle. Also, or ask you, the people that work in the shop. Right. Or you could, on the flip side, just like grab a few, experiment, and then whichever bottles you like the best, then you could Google the AOCs. Yes. Also a fun way to do it. Probably would be um, more fun because then you're Googling after you've had a, exactly. a glass or two. A glass or two or a <laughs> bottle or two. Um, so we actually, it seems like really foreign and complicated, but we have a really similar system to that here in the United States. And it's called an AVA. So American Viticultural Areas is what we call them here in America. And this is how we get the labeling system we're used to that I was mentioning before. So vineyard or wine name first, grape, region or AVA, mm-hmm. and year. So AVA would be Napa. Sonoma, Sonoma Coast, right. Central Coast, Willamette Valley. Like these are American AVA or these are AVAs. It's kind of redundant to say American AVAs, but right. these are AVAs. So that's our version of AOP. Gotcha. So we actually do label our wines in a somewhat similar way. We just, of course, have different rules and regulations that every AVA follows versus like AOPs in France. Right. Does the AVA have like rule sets or it's yeah, really just the location? Well, it's, it's both. Um, yeah. It's more about the location, but there are rule sets. Like, for instance, I don't remember if this is Napa or Sonoma, but for a wine to say that it's, for a wine to say that it's a single varietal, meaning for the bottle to say Cabernet, right. it has to be 75% or more of, that, of grape. that grape. Yeah. Which it could just be 75% and the other 25%, they don't have to disclose what grapes they are. Yeah. Um, which isn't uncommon. Like in the world... So many AOPs in France, for instance, it'll say like um, Chateauneuf de Pop, which will be a whole nother episode we'll get into down the line because that's another <laughs> hard, it's hard to approach. 
Um, that is just says Chateauneuf du Pop on it, and it can have up to 18 different grapes right. blended right. into the wine. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's uh, that's how we got to where we are with Burgundy to try to like help you get after it a little bit more and be not afraid to explore and go into a wine shop and know a little bit more about what to expect. Yeah, and thanks to the monks who. Oh my gosh! Thanks to the monks, kicked it off for us way so, back when. There's uh, there's a few extra things that I kind of pulled out of the chronology okay. there. That fun facts, fun facts, Trevor's fun facts. Uh, now I said Burgundy produces a lot of wine in numbers. It seems like a lot. So. 200 million, roughly, bottles a year, which is like just below 17 million cases of wine, which is hard to wrap my head around. But that is only 3% of all of France's wine production. Wow. Okay. So it's really not much. It's not a lot in the grand scheme of things. And Burgundy only represents 0.3% of the entire world's wine production, which goes to show why those price tags are higher and higher every single year. Right. Now, when you think of the color burgundy, what do you think of? I mean red. Red, right? Yeah. Um, which is funny because 61% of Burgundian wine is actually white. Huh. Almost two-thirds of Burgundy wine is white, 30% is red, and then 8% is the sparkling wine, um, which is called Cremant de Burgonia. Huh. And then there's 1% sliver of rosé coming huh. from Burgundy. Don't yeah, I don't think I've ever had a rosé from Burgundy. I don't think I have either. I, mean, I might if have you tried haven't, one. I definitely haven't. We haven't together anyway. Yeah. Uh, also, in 1787, just before the French Revolution, Thomas Jefferson was the was the American ambassador to France at the time, and he gave the first recorded foreign description of that region. So, under his influence, the sellers of the White House opened up their doors to Burgundy wines. Ah. So that's really when. Burgundy wine started to become renowned in America. And he was actually a a big collector of Burgundy wine, Thomas Jefferson, over the years. There's actually a fantastic book out there, highly recommend it, called The Billionaire's Vinegar. And it all stems from a sale of a wine bottle that was supposedly taken from uh, Thomas Jefferson's estate, Monticello. Monticello, Monticello, Uh, It was like a 1787 or something vintage Burgundy that went for auction for so much money. And then come to find out it was all a hoax. It was all a con. Really? Yeah, read the book. The Billionaire's Vinegar. Highly recommended. Fantastic book. Wow. So believe it or not, America played a huge role in making making sure that Burgundy didn't disappear off the planet forever. How? So yeah. So while the wines of Burgundy were enjoying the great success of like the 19th century, um, they were hit with an unprecedented crisis. So in 1875, they were struck by phylloxera, oh, yeah, which is that. a bug that destroys wine, wine vines, grape yeah. vines. So because of that, actually, the, the, the phylloxera came from America. Came from, both, we, we both created the problem and solved the problem. So phylloxera <laughs> came from America. like us. Yeah. Go figure. Uh, hero complex. Um, even in those days. So it came from America and destroyed the wine production in the area. How did Burgundy. it get to France? I'm sure on, you know, yeah. ships and things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's, how yeah. does any kind of thing spread around the world like that? So insecticides didn't work. So in 1888, the winemakers adopted uh, a novel solution called grafting. So from then on, French vines were grafted onto American rootstock, American vine rootstock. Is this a graft like you would think of a skin graft? Like Exactly. Taking... They were taking American vine rootstock and putting 
French grapevines on top of it. Oh, wow. So na- the American rootstock was naturally resistant to phylloxera, um, and this had no consequence for the resulting wine. Wow. So this saved Burgundy. And a lot of Europe wine, European wine actually was saved because of American rootstock. Wow. Which is funny because American rootstock came from came France. from Europe. Yeah. <laughs> but we oh. somehow created this phylloxera bug that destroyed their wine, and they had to use our grapevines to fix it, which right. originally came from them. It's really right. interesting. Which I guess that's probably why it was successful, I guess, because the – what am I trying to say? I have no idea. Um, the roots – uh, were similar enough yes. to they are the, the same that they species. were trying to yeah. save. Yes, exactly. they are the same exactly. species. Yeah, that's exactly. what I was trying to say. <laughs> so that's it. That is that is all I have on on Burgundy wine. So let me let me run through my resources real quick here. Um, so the Oxford Companion to Wine by Jancis Robinson, which is the preeminent resource on all things wine. It's like this three inch thick coffee table reader um, that everyone who's studied for the psalm exam owns in their house. <laughs> Laura can attest to how big and heavy it is. Yes. Uh, the Ultimate Guide to the Burgundy Wine Region by Rosalind Jackson at HowStuffWorks.com, another fantastic podcast out there, BurgoniaWines.com, BurgundyDiscovery.com, uh, Courtney Schissel at VinePair.com, great article she wrote, as well as WineFolly.com. So all those, all those wonderful resources out there for, yeah. for Burgundy wines. How did it feel to re-look at Burgundy? Did you feel like you were studying for your psalm exam again? Uh, differently, because I knew that pressure wasn't hanging over my head to, uh, <laughs> yeah. to take the exam and pass it. Um, thanks, as always, for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It really, really helps us out and lets us Particularly know that... Particularly if you have five stars to give us. Yes. Um, <laughs> like I said, it, it really helps us out and lets us know that you want us to keep making more episodes for you, which we definitely want to be doing because we love doing this. Yeah, it's been fun. And yeah, for everyone, um, if you have topics for us to explore, we are totally open to hearing those. So just hit us up on Instagram or text us since a lot of you know us personally. Um, At where did this come from pod? Yes, on on Instagram. Instagram. Yep. Um, so we're, we're happy to hear additional ideas down the road. We're going to have some, some guest stars. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, some really great episodes coming down the line for sure. Some which we even suggested by you. So keep those coming in. Uh, but in the meantime, everybody, uh, be well, stay healthy, have a great week. And we'll see you next time on Where Did This Come From? Bye.